Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and today we're going back back to 1993 when folks were touting this new thing called the Internet, this new technology that promised to make our lives so much easier. And in the Silicon Valley, well, that was the center of it all. Take this AT&T ad, for instance. Have you ever borrowed a book from thousands of miles away or sent someone a fax from the beach? 25 years later, the Internet has not only allowed us to send messages from the beach, but also communicate and connect with the world like never before. I'm Tanya Mosley, in for Sasha Koka. Sit back and relax as KQED's tech team takes you back in time to revisit the hope, promise, and realities of the Internet. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're here at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California, and I'm here with my crew, Sam Harnett and Peter John Schuler, and we're entering the Revolution Room, the first 2,000 years of computing. Along the display as we walk through, we can see just how much a computer cost folks back in the 70s. We're talking $28,500, and it's the size of a refrigerator. But how powerful was it? It was like less powerful than what you've got in your pocket right now. And it's really interesting. If we even look back at the beginning of the Internet, say, KQED actually did a lot of work from 1993, part of the series called Virtual World. And you were a big part of that, Peter. We were still from the outside looking in. We were reporting on something that was emerging, but we weren't necessarily using. So, uh, Peter, when you did your story, this is 1993, did you even have access to a computer? I'm pretty sure we were still doing our stories on typewriters. So I remember uh, I was at the station and you showed this piece to me that you'd done 25 years ago, which you had titled Techno Slaves. Um, And you played the piece for me and listening to it, I was like, wow, these are things that we're dealing with now, like times 10 or at hyperspeed. So yeah, I thought it'd be really great to take your story uh, that you did in 1993, 25 years later, revisit it and talk to some of the same people and see what has changed, what hasn't, are things for the better or for the worse. I'd like to hear from some of these people. (laughs) Where are they now, and now are they still suffering? Hello, this is Maureen Glancy. I'm sorry I can't answer your telephone call in person, but I will be glad to... I resent it when I walk into my office and the little red light is uh, flashing madly. Maureen Glancy is associate professor in the Recreation and Leisure Studies Department at San Jose State University. 
I dial into the system and when I hear that I have 11 messages and I literally have 15 minutes, I say to myself, I can't do this now and I put it off till later. Hi, is this Maureen? Yes, it is. Hi, Maureen. This is Sam. I'm from KQED Public Radio. And uh, I'm calling oh. you. Yeah, I'm calling you because um, a colleague of mine, um, Peter John Schuler, he interviewed you a bunch of years ago. Do you, do you remember that? Very vaguely. That was a long time ago. Back when Maureen talked to Peter, she thought technology was becoming our masters instead of our servants. Here she is in 1993. The answering system doesn't forget. I must therefore listen to every call. Life is no longer imperfect. You know, we can't be just plain human beings. We are technologically perfect. Maureen has since retired, but she's still haunted by those little red flashing lights. And I have the same reaction. Do you feel, though, in general that uh, smartphones are making people uh, kind of more tied to work in a way that would have scared you in 1993? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's instantaneous. It's 24 hours a day. The chain is never broken. Smartphones wouldn't start flooding the market until 2007, 14 years later. Today, according to Pew Research, nearly 80% of us have a phone that prods us at all hours with emails, texts, and notifications. Now, back to 1993. In a recent survey by Macworld magazine, a majority of personal computer users said they believed their PCs had made them more productive. But about half said it also causes them to work additional hours. What's happened, says Jeff Johnson, a computer interface expert and chairman of Computer Professionals for Social Responsibility, is that over time, technology has raised the standards for what needs to be done. When the computer is brought in, doing those tasks may go faster. But the problem then is the expectations go up. Now they have to do more work. It's not like they have more free time. Wow. <laughs> we were we were savvy in a way at that time, but still kind of naive. Today, Jeff Johnson teaches computer science at the University of San Francisco. Even way back then, he predicted that major companies would take over and commercialize the internet. He wrote an article in 1996 called The Information Highway from Hell, a worst case scenario. I had envisioned an information network that was sort of based on shoving information, shoving ads at consumers and having them buy products and having families, you know, order everything online. And at that time, Amazon was just starting to sell books. The next person Peter talked to in his story was Dan Schaefer, a power user of the latest technologies. When you walk into my office, you'll see I have a lot of gadgets. I mean, I've got in the room that we're sitting in, I've got what, a Mac Quadra, I've got a Windows machine over in the corner, I've got a cellular phone sitting over on my desk that's recharging. The Mac Quadra. It was a desktop computer with a processing speed of 40 megahertz. The latest smartphones in our pockets are more than 60 times as fast. And what about that promise of sending a fax from the beach? Or sent someone a fax. From the beach. I almost see that as an implied threat. It's like, you know, uh, uh, even when you go to the beach, you'll be sending faxes, sucker. You know, like, I'm not sure this is my idea of a great way to spend the rest of my life. <laughs> the danger is that we will allow the anytime, anyplace office to become the every time, every place office. This is Paul Sappho, who was and still is a technology forecaster. He says we weren't critical enough of technology back in 1993. When new technology arrives, 
inevitably we approach it with naive optimism. It is going to be the deus ex machina that solves all our problems, cures the common cold, and brings in world peace. And that's exactly how everybody looked at the World Wide Web and what we would later go on to call social media. Now, back in 1993, when reporter Peter John Schuler did his story, he was trying to interrogate that optimism. Peter felt that new technologies were being used to make him work anywhere and everywhere. We find ourselves encumbered by a ponderous digital chain that binds us to the workplace wherever we go. Peter ended his piece with this clip from 2001, A Space Odyssey, when the character Dave is finally able to shut down the computer. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? Dave, stop. I'm Peter John Schuler, KQED Radio News. For the California Report, I'm Sam Harnett. You're listening to the California Report magazine. I'm Tanya Mosley, and I'm here at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View with Peter John Schuler. He reported some of those early stories back in 93. Peter, once the internet was up and running, there were people connecting all over the world, and there was something called prosuming. What exactly is a prosumer? My meaning, when I put it in this piece, was somebody who's creating things and consuming things at the same time. The idea was we would all be channels of creativity and communication, and we'd all have something to say, and we'd all have something to create, and we'd be sharing it amongst all the other people in the world. Like YouTube? Sort of like YouTube, but without the trappings of YouTube. We would be our own channel. The dream was we'd be creating things and there'd be some way to have people check a little box and say, oh, I like that, here's a few cents to you for for doing that. That's gone. Well, Rachel Myro revisited Peter's story from 25 years ago on the burgeoning world of the prosumer and the endless possibilities. KQED's Peter John Schuler kicked off his story with music from an obscure band, their name, A Halo Called Fred. This is their song, Hat. This song is not about hat. This song's about something else. So fancy that. This song is not about hat. This music, as they say, is not available in stores, and this may be the only time you'll hear it on the radio. But thanks to the Internet Underground Music Archive, you can hear it online 24 hours a day. Here's Peter today. Now, I don't know whatever happened to these artists. You know, I'll see if I can't find out. (laughs) They're probably selling car insurance somewhere. A halo called Fred is still around, but the members all have day jobs. One's a software engineer, another's an audio engineer, another works in publishing, another is a music teacher. So you could say they're amateurs in the classic Greek sense of the word, making music for the love of it. Or you could say they were early pioneers in something new the Internet made possible. Back in 1993, Peter talked about a word coined by the futurist Alvin Toffler— prosumer. He had a slightly different meaning in mind when he fused the word producer and consumer, but prosuming seems an apt label for the kind of free-flowing give-and-take now practiced by users of the net. 
Thanks to the Internet Underground Music Archive and other startups like it, music distribution did become substantially cheaper, and the universe of music did expand as more people uploaded their creative work. But just because you put a song out there in the world doesn't mean anyone is going to listen to it without a heck of a lot of promotion of the right kind. And media companies are fighting as hard as ever to stay in the mix, to keep your ears and eyeballs glued to their content. Ariana Grande is not tops on the iTunes charts just because she's talented, as at least one person Peter talked to back in 93 predicted. Out of 50 channels with nothing on, we're going to have 500 channels with nothing on. Jerry Berman is executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Many of them these companies have a much narrower vision of the information highway, and they think of really building a lot of capacity to deliver information downstream, in other words, from the station or the cable company to the consumer, but not a lot of bandwidth or capability for the consumer to either reach back or to reach out to other consumers. I don't think he was guessing. I think he knew what was coming. A very big signal focused at you, at the consumer, and a tiny little signal reaching out, pushing the other way. I don't know. Nobody forces you to watch crapola. But if you don't pay attention, your attention will be directed and manipulated. What's surfacing to the top isn't necessarily what's what's good. I dug up Internet Underground Music Archive co-founder Jeff Patterson, and he told me he's a little horrified about what's happened to music since he and another UC Santa Cruz student started Ayuma back in the day. Patterson calls what we have now a kind of idiocracy. You know, you, you have all this access to all the information you want to discover, and, you know, you find yourself in front of, you know, YouTube watching cat videos. And the promise of the net is, you know, it's been fulfilled, but it's also, <laughs> it's also frightening. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with cat videos. I'm Peter John Schuler, KQED Radio News. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. You're listening to a special edition of the California Report magazine. We're broadcasting this week from the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. And we're talking about the emergence of the Internet, the promise of that technology, and how it has changed our lives. And I am standing in the entryway leading into the museum. You can probably hear pretty faintly the sound of what sounds like a typewriter, a printer, We all know that sound. That's the sound of a modem. Well, it depends on what age you are. You remember that sound. I'm here with my colleagues, Peter John Schuler, who did a lot of reporting on the early emergence of the Internet 25 years ago, and Sam Harnett, who covers the Silicon Valley and technology today. Okay, we're in front of the first personal computer from 1975, the Altair 8800. And Peter, I don't even know what I'm looking at. There's not a screen here. There's just a bunch of buttons. It's like this huge behemoth microwave looking thing. I don't even know how to describe it. Well, it, it's, it uh, has lights and some toggle switches. I think the, these toggle switches here were actually used to program it. If you look at all the displays and how they're describing the computers, I mean, even personal computer, um, this idea that the computer was connected to you and that you could use it as an individual um, was 
kind of a change in the idea um, from like these big mainframes where everyone would sort of get together and work on it to this thing that like was individualized. Um, there was this whole idea that the computer was going to change every individual. You know what else I see here is the evolution into this idea of hailing up the entrepreneur, the single right. person who's, who's created this amazing technology that can change the world. And I can't help but say, at looking at all of these individual photos of these pioneers from back of the day, Bill Gates, Paul Allen, Ed Roberts, they're all young white men. And so in looking back at our pieces from 1993, one of our reporters back then, Harry Lynn, took a look at how we can get minorities and women more included in this space so that they can be entrepreneurs and creators. He visited a school called Fremont High School in Oakland to talk with young minority kids about the prospect of entering this new burgeoning world of innovation. And I decided to go back and talk with them 25 years later. Pulling up to Fremont High, it's almost exactly like reporter Harry Lynn described it 25 years ago. There's a wrought iron fence encircling the school here in the working class flatlands of East Oakland. The green windbreakers the guards wear say security across the back. Armed with walkie-talkies, they patrol the fence's gates, the ground's walkways, the building's stairwells. That wrought iron fence is still here, and so are the security guards. The day before my visit, the building was on lockdown. A student brought a gun to school. Now, teacher Jasmine Miranda is just trying to get things back to normal. I am going to lock the door so we don't have any more interruptions, and we are going to get started. Miranda's been planning this day for months, a special demo for her Media Academy class. We're getting ready for an InstaVR uh, hack. A hackathon where her students will come up with ways to use augmented and virtual reality to improve their communities. 18-year-old Francisco Pantaleon quickly finishes up a game of Fortnite with his friends and directs his attention to Miranda and a presenter from the VR company. The idea of virtual reality excites him. Well, the thing is, real life sometimes kind of stinks, you know, and we need to get away. It's, it's just good to get away and have a little bit of, like, Fun time. Francisco wants to design video games one day, but Miranda is hoping this VR demo will get he and his classmates thinking about other possibilities beyond games. What can we build? What can we do with it? So what can we do on the, on the back end? We can be the creators. It's a thought process Miranda wishes she had when she was a student here back in 93. That's the same year KQED visited the school. At the time, the school's Media Academy was held as a program teaching kids about the latest in technology. But looking back, Miranda wonders, was it enough? If you think of what was available back then, we didn't really have access to that. And I do remember the discussion back then. I do remember there was a glove, the power glove. Mm. We didn't have access to stuff like that. The Media Academy at Fremont did teach students back then how to create their own publications and tell their stories through radio and video. But in light of the flood of technological advances and startup culture in the valley that followed, Miranda wonders if they were taught the right things. Miranda listened to that old story, and this is where she gets emotional. These students live in a real as well as a virtual world. We're listening to the original news story. 
I laughed and then I was sad because I don't think that things have changed much. That real world harbors family money problems, racial discrimination, and impoverished schools. Teacher Steve O'Donohue. Most of the students here don't have personal computers at home. They don't have modems. They don't have the basic tools to access, you know, the knowledge, the superhighway, right? Miranda says her students today still live in that real world. Fremont High struggles with attendance and low test scores. And Miranda knows the reasons behind those numbers. These students deal with all sorts of things outside of school, like violence and poverty. Yes, we have computers, but the amount of students in my academy that actually have access to the internet at home, it's, it's not as high as you would think it is. So they're using their cell phone on campus and using our Wi-Fi signal. And sometimes they may have a cell phone, but that doesn't mean that that cell phone is actually operating. One of the more eager students in the story from 1993 was Benjamin Brooks. Miranda helped me track him down through Facebook. Here he is at 17 years old. Benjamin Brooks doesn't have a cell phone, but he's a tech head nonetheless. Technology is just to make everything easier. You know, uh, it's, computers are an easier way of filing and storing information. Who knows what we'll be able to do later on. To hear my voice from uh, being so young, it really took me back. Brooks now lives in Sacramento and works for the state's Bureau of Automotive Repair. And he's happy with what he does. But when I asked if it had ever crossed his mind back then, the possibility that he or his friends could be a part of creating technology in the Silicon Valley, he got really quiet and then said this. Where I grew up at, I represent the area of people who are just going to consume. So we get information, enough information, so we can perpetually consume and teach our kids how to consume. And the curriculum that we have means to us consuming, not inventing and creating. Eric, you going to work with him? This is good. But Brooks says he is proud that Jasmine Miranda is getting kids to think of themselves as more than passive consumers. And Miranda says, well, all of her students may not make the connections right now. She believes by planting the seeds, one day they will. Maybe they're, they're in college and they, they meet up with someone in their dorm room and they decide that they want to develop an app and then they create a company and they make sure that they hire more youth of Oakland and start you know, listening to pitches like what they experience today. And just maybe 25 years from now, will be telling that story. For our last story, we return to the Computer History Museum with a special guest, Larry Maggot. Larry is a journalist who reports for KCBS and the Mercury News, and he's been covering personal computing for a long time, since 1983, just around the time people were starting to talk about this new thing called the information superhighway. His early concerns over children and their safety online led him to create ConnectSafely.org. He now serves on many advisory boards, including Facebook, Google, Snapchat, and Twitter, and it only seemed right to talk to him here to talk about issues like privacy and abuse online. Let's walk through the museum. Yeah, let's take a walk. How well do you feel like you anticipated what we're experiencing now around privacy and abuse online? And what are some things you might have missed? Well, in my earliest days, I missed a lot. So in 83, I wrote a book called The Electronic Link. 
And I think there were two pages on security, and I don't think there was anything on privacy. But in 84, I wrote a column in the LA Times where I talked about Big Brother, and I was worried about surveillance. And of course, I was picking up on Orwell's dystopian vision of machines that are on 24-7 that are watching us and talking to us. Uh, I can't remember what he called telescreen is what That's he called right. them. And I naively said in that column that the good news, the difference between Orwell's telescreen and your personal computer is that your computer has a very powerful component called an on and off switch. And what was naive about that is I didn't anticipate that many years later we would be carrying computers in our pocket. They're called smartphones. And have them on 24 hours right. a day. They do have off switches, but nobody ever uses them. I, I never turn my phone off. So for all practical purposes, it's not all that different from the telescreen. Uh, I can be interrupted if somebody chooses to and they could spy on me. It's, I'm not saying it happens, but it's not impossible. So. I'm not saying it's maleficent or dystopian like, like Orwell, but it, it's not all that different. We've been consumers for so long, and now we're kind of waking up to how everything works. Well, I think we, at, without becoming too cynical, we need to understand the immense power that these companies have, and we need to be constantly knocking on their door, asking them questions, demanding transparency. I used to be almost vehemently anti-regulation. I no longer feel that way. I think the government does have a role in making sure these companies are good corporate citizens because the amount of power that a company like Facebook with, with 2.5 billion users around the world, in some ways it has more power than Congress and the president combined. Are there any aspects about privacy today that um, you think we'll consider old-fashioned some decades from now? We used to think of privacy as nobody should get in my business, that how much money I earn or my medical condition, that's all my business and that uh, you know, my, my friends don't need to know and my boss doesn't need to know and the government doesn't need to know. But I think that we may get to the point where we stop stressing over what we have control over. If you choose to put something on Facebook that is dumb and embarrassing and maybe even gets you in trouble, that might be bad judgment, but uh, that's on you. But thinking about all of those other things that you can't control, right. like your home, we can see pictures inside of your home before you bought it online, all of those things, um, is there a way to go back in that and is it harmful for us ultimately? You're right. Not only that, if you knew how to hack, you could open my garage door right now and get into my that's house right. That's right. and you could access my, my doorbell camera and find out who, who the last person that walked in there. Um, but well, we can't put the genie back in the bottle. I mean, if you want to live a life that's completely private, first of all, get rid of your phone. Second of all, get rid of your computer. Third of all, get rid of your car. Fourth of all, get rid of all your credit cards. Make sure you cancel your Safeway Club card membership. Um, make sure you're not doing any banking. I mean, literally, you would have to live in the forest under a rock. Yeah, off the grid. Off the grid. And people do that, but very few of us are, are willing to do so. So I think it's a question of trusting those information. I thought about this 25 years ago. I got off a plane from New York and L.A., and I thought, oh, I forgot to tell my family where I am. They don't know where I am. But then I realized, this is 25 years ago, AT&T knows where I am because I use my telephone credit card. United Airlines knows where I am because I flew there. MasterCard knows where I am because I use my MasterCard. Right. So I, even back then, I didn't have digital privacy, but I trusted that these companies were obeying their own policies and the law and not disclosing it in an unauthorized manner. Whether that trust was properly placed or not is another question. Larry, despite what's happening right now, you seem pretty optimistic about the future. I would say cautiously optimistic. I mean, I can't predict the future, and I think that there are some roadblocks and dangerous curves ahead. But I think that if people remain aware 
and keep government and companies accountable that we can get through this and that technology will have served humankind better than it's harmed humankind, but I'm not naive to think that there aren't unintended consequences. Larry Maggot, Bay Area journalist and founder of ConnectSafely.org. Thank you for joining us, Larry. Thank you so much. And that's the California Report magazine brought to you from the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin, Rob Spate, and Howard Gilman. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleone. Our editorial team includes Bianca Taylor, Sasha Coca, Julia Scott, Susie Racho, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Tanya Mosley. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the Wesley Foundation, improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.